Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Hey, everyone. Um, Indigo Podcast here. Just want to say thank you again to all our loyal listeners. Um, it's really fulfilling to see the uh, download and listen counts, you know, rack up a week over week. Um, oh yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and I, I would like to I would like to thank not only our loyal listener, listeners but also our disloyal listeners. If you listened once, that's okay too. But um, our loyal listeners, we <laughs> we like you even more. <laughs> yeah, but. Hey, here's the deal, guys. We we only grow um, when people share. Uh, we are not doing that kind of three minute abs approach to management, or what is it? Eight minute abs? Eight minute abs approach eight. to? Yeah. yeah, I mean that's like way longer than three. But um, <laughs> listen, we only grow with this kind of niche content that does a deep dive if you share it with people that that's find right. it meaningful. And so for those of you that are sharing, that are reposting on LinkedIn. Um, for the one person who mentioned they put it actually did put it on their okay Cupid profile. Great. <laughs> uh, we'll take it, you know. So anyway, um, let's talk t- about today's episode. So Ben, what are we talking about today? Yes. So today we are talking about understanding science and the world of work. And uh, before we kind of you know, talk about some of the big things we're going to talk about. You know, I, I just want to say that, I, you know, let's start this episode in the worst possible way by um, saying that, you know, this episode <laughs> will probably leave many of you unsatisfied. And, you know, because we're going to talk about how science works and so forth. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is that we're going to be pulling back the curtain a little bit. And, you know, discussing how science is is messy it's it's a it's a great system and it's wonderful um and we can empathize with everyone's desire to get definitive answers to all of the big questions that life poses uh but gosh in the in the world of uh, particularly in social science which where we deal in leadership and management and so forth gosh I, like there is a lot of incomplete information a lot of ambiguity um science does tell us some great things um but we're going to tackle this today and hopefully give a little bit better insight um, for all of our listeners in terms of, you know, what science is, how it works. And I think this is just great information for every informed citizen of the world to know because uh, it helps us digest and evaluate information that's thrown at us all the time. Yeah. And even people that deal in more technical fields, like Mm -hmm. that people with actual engineering degrees and stuff tend to miss this stuff. Um, Science, well, I don't know. I can't tell you how many organizations I go into and the CEO or some director or something says, oh, my gosh, you've got to read this book. Mm -hmm. And then you look at it and it's just, you know, some famous person or known quantity in the business world or somebody with like really good social media game makes. I mean, lots of times the books are harmless, right? Mm -hmm. But they'll make radical claims that just aren't supported by the literature that's out there. That's right. That's right. And, you know, so science, it can help us with knowing like what you should pay attention to, what doesn't work. Um, Also, it can also, it can increase our probability of success in organizations, but there, there really aren't uh, any silver bullets. And that's, you know, part of the wah, wah, that we're going to start with this episode with. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess if we were to break down, um, you know, the different parts of today's episode, we're going to start by talking about what is science and how does science work. Uh, we're going to talk uh, then um, a little bit more about you know when it works, what kinds of knowledge uh, science provides, and then we're going to do a little wrap up and, and provide some we what we hope will be some practical advice in terms of how to use this information and how we can use science to make the world a better place. All right, so kind of hopping back on kind of those crappy business books that every, everyone sees. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what are some? You'll always see this, like Business Insider, or there'll be some, you know, trending news on Google. Red meat is the best thing for you ever. And then Mm -hmm. three, you know, and they cite one study that hasn't even hit a journal yet. And and then three, 
three months later, red meat, you, you hate your body if you eat red meat, you know? Right. And, and then people, you know, tend to have these motivated reasonings to take a single study and throw it around. So let's talk about what science actually is, you know? Right. Okay. So science, the way I, I think about it, and I think uh, probably, you know, a good way to kind of think about it broadly is that science consists of kind of two things. It consists of, first of all, you know, a body of knowledge about how the world works. Um, and this goes from everything from, you know, the physical world and physics and biology and so forth and, and all that kind of uh, that realm of information to the social sciences and psychology and sociology and so forth in terms of how humans interact. Uh, and it, it's this body of knowledge that we accumulate over time and that scholars over time try to build upon and correct and replicate and try to figure out in a in a systematic yet still fairly messy way, um, you know, we try to try to add upon the the total knowledge that exists. Uh, the second piece of kind of what science is, is it also refers to the process by which we produce that knowledge. Um, you know, when I talk with uh, prospective doctoral students or current doctoral students, I like to remind them and kind of explain that, you know, when you're getting a doctoral degree, um, what you're trying to do is you know, learn how to produce new knowledge. And it's, it can kind of sound scary at first, but it's like, that's literally what you're trying to do. You're trying to find new things and trying to add a little bit. And oftentimes it's, you know, this comes in little drips and drabs in the ocean of what we know. Um, but uh, that's what you're trying to do versus, you know, you get your undergraduate degree. That's more about the kind of the acquisition of knowledge. A master's degree is usually more about the application of knowledge. Um, and then, you know, what we try to do in the scholarly community is we try to produce new knowledge through research that uh, follows a scientific method. You're right. So one of the things with this is a lot of people get, you know, their exposure to science is learning a bunch of facts and you know, biology or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Or if they're taking physics in high school or college, you know, they're learning some equations, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, maybe modeling a little bit, uh, you know, mathematical modeling. Um, but, you know, ye old high school science project is, you know, you get the big... Ugh. Gosh, you got to go out to the <laughs> Walmart, right? And yet you, you get the big poster board and... You know, everything is, oh, well, I don't know. Right when I kids, it's obvious people Google, you know, science projects for kids. Right. So, right. So that's fine. But you have a hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. Then you talk about the tests that you ran. You talk about your results and then, you know, maybe a findings portion. Right. Um, and, right? And, and that is kind of the general at a very high level overly simplified description of the scientific method, right? And um, now I would argue that probably the vast majority of, um, you know, science projects done by grade schoolers and high schools probably isn't producing new knowledge. And that's okay, because <laughs> they're, I mean, they're, they're you're, it's, it's about learning the process. And you're so in forth, fourth and grade. Why aren't you adding meaningfully <laughs> to the earth? <laughs> this must be published. You're right. Um, now, there probably are some prodigies out there that do it. But um, what this is, you know, the idea is that you are trying to understand what is known in a certain area. So that would be, you know, it, it, this is actually the way many scientific articles are written. So there's some sort of literature review where you're talking, Yeah, you want to make about, sure you're not mowing the lawn that's already been mowed before, that's, right? That's right. That's right. So you, you uh, discuss what's, what we know uh, in the scientific community about some topic. And then based upon that, say, this is what we don't know. And that's why we're going to look into this. And then making some hypotheses uh, which are, I guess, you know, the, the kind of the common definition is an educated guess of some sort. But, you know, what we do in the social sciences is we, we try to use uh, well-established theories and other types of um, information to give us an idea of what we would expect to happen. And, um, I mean, this is just one way to approach the scientific method. This is That's because so. you guys are all, like, plotting with your super biases, right? <laughs> well, I, we'll get into that, but there are many biases that come in here. This is not a, this is a messy process, right? Um, and then, you know, based upon those hypotheses, some sort of 
um, methodology to investigate those hypotheses and uh, be it an experiment, be it looking at some sort of data, um, and that can come in many different shapes and sizes, uh, seeing what that what is revealed by those data, and uh, then discussing some of the results and implications of it, right? So that's, that's kind of the overall way that, um, you know, we can maybe think about the scientific method. And of course, there are lots of different variations kind of at every step there. Uh, but that is kind of the, you know, the, uh, um, the overly simplified method. And, I, and you know, the, it would be a misnomer, though, to imply that the scientific method always follows this kind of recipe. Right. So... And most people think that everything's known in that kind of simple way. Okay, well, here's a question. We'll design a test. Voila, answers. And those mm -hmm. are facts. And then, okay, so we submit it to a journal. Somebody else does our super simple test. Voila, facts, right? Mm -hmm. And lots of times it's just not that simple. The stuff that we're measuring is uh, very complex. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, different uh, scientific studies have different purposes, right? So um, you can kind of think of a few different reasons why you may engage in the scientific method. And uh, one of them might be to explain some sort of phenomenon that's occurring. Uh, so in my world, you know, that would be phenomena that relates to the, the way we organize ourselves at work, um, different things that are happening in the workplace, um, different you know modes of human interaction and so forth. So the explanation piece. Another reason we may inter interact in, with uh, the scientific method and try to study something is to just just to describe it, right? So um, right. there's some explanation, some description, and then what we would ideally um, move towards, and this is where it gets tricky, is we try to move towards prediction. And what this means is we're trying to figure out some sort of uh, you know causal relationships between certain things that happen, right? If I do X, what is likely to happen? Um, and that is uh, that's a, a tricky process. Um, it's you know, in order to establish causality, uh, you can't just you know look at something at time A and look at something at time B, and if it changed, then time you know whatever happened at time time A changed whatever happened in time B. No, that's not how it works, right? You've got to, um, because oftentimes there are omitted variables in these this equation. And um, just to kind of go on that for a second, like, you know, the kind of the classic example is, uh, you know, when, when we talk about correlation, right? When you have um, covariance in two variables, like, you know, so for example, you know, most uh, across the general population, height and weight are positively correlated. Like, but it's not always true, right? So, um, you know, in general, yeah. If you're, um, if you're yeah. taller, <laughs> if you're six, a six foot person will generally weigh more than a four foot person, right? Right. right. So that's the, that's <laughs> kind of, but that's this idea of correlation, right? But um, but what's important to remember is that doesn't mean that one thing necessarily causes the other. Um, you know, so for example, you know, um, if you look at at the data, um, we, we we can see that uh, ice cream sales and drowning are correlated. Yeah, don't buy oh, that ice cream, you're going to yeah. drown. Right, right. So uh, <laughs> that that would be, you know, assuming that correlation equals causation, but that's not true, right? We know that, you know, it's not ice cream causing drowning. It is an omitted variable in that equation, which would be, you know, warmer temperatures when it's when it's hot, people tend to buy more ice cream. When it's hot, people also tend to engage in water sports and other types of water-related activities more. And there's... By, by that nature, right, that you're going to have um, increased probability of drowning. Uh, and so you, you have to omit these different variables. And I don't want to get into all the messy details of this, but, you know, in experimentation, the way that we um, can mitigate that is through random selection of different groups and so forth. Um, but let's let's move on from that a little bit, right? So I'm Yeah, just, it's, it's going to be so yeah. hard not to go. I know. Uh, if you guys have not taken a philosophy of science course or something like that, yeah, I totally recommend it. It's even fascinating. If you just audit, audit it. Yeah. Um, but these methodologies all go in. But here, here's some practical things that I saw. Do you remember the power poses thing, Ben? That power was poses, a... yes. Amy Cuddy, um, a researcher, I believe, at Harvard, who, uh, um, yeah, she, <laughs> I, if I remember, you know, her study, and she did a TED Talk on it. It was, you know, 
that if you do certain poses with your body, um, like, you know, make yourself look big and kind of like the victory pose, like, you know, with your arms over your head and so forth, that this will, uh, you know, make you more confident and successful and so forth. Right. And so people, at least when I see it, that there's a problem that they're facing <laughs> in organizations, right? And it, we'll see, we had one one person that approached us for a proposal and, you know, they felt that their plant leader wasn't charismatic enough. Uh -huh. So, you know, what, what can you do to make this person more charismatic? Or, you know, you'll, you'll have a VP that, you know, I'm really nervous addressing this big audience to talk about our division yeah. strategy. And, and they're coming, I mean, at least they're taking a step to look at some kind of science, right? You know, right. so that a lot of people don't even get there. They're just buying the snake oil of, you know, rub CBD oil on your elbow and, <laughs> you know, equals business success, right? <laughs> you know, right. these guys are actually, I mean, they're smart people, but there's stuff in our psyche that yeah. makes us pull for the magic trick shortcut. It's yeah. just so... Well, and, and going back to the power poses thing, right? So that's right. been... That, that, that it has failed to replicate well, right? When other researchers have tried exactly. to do this, it hasn't... Sorry, Amy. Sorry. Yeah, it, it, it just hasn't, <laughs> um, you know, shown to be nearly as robust of a result. And there's a... This is also speaks to the quote-unquote replication crisis in social psychology and some other um, disciplines, um, which is a topic for another day. But, uh, you know, um, it, it's... This is a messy thing. Um, research is, is not uh, a kind of formulaic type of activity um, that necessarily always produces the clearest results for us. And even when we do, um, you know, we, we still oftentimes, like in a, um, you know, speaking from a, like a quantitative standpoint, when we are, uh, you know, analyzing something with multiple regression or some other technique, um, we oftentimes are only able to explain, you know, maybe like if we're lucky we explain maybe 20 maybe a little bit more um percent of the variance in another variable like which means that there is a whole bunch of unexplained stuff that's going on and uh so the, there's a lot of truth yet out there that we don't know right and so you know stuff like the power poses stuff garners a lot of attention because it seems so simple right we you know make wave your hands above your head equals power, right? And and maybe on the placebo effect, that does something for us, you know? We, and and we, if it does, then more power to you, you yeah. know? <laughs> power pose it away. Yeah. But when we start to talk about interventions for organizations, right, there is a base level of stuff that we mm -hmm. know with a decent amount of certainty, right? Sure. Um, but a lot of this other stuff is kind of, up in the air and that's that's where people can do these pop business book pop psych book on how to do i mean it, it's almost like diet books you know the mediterranean diet body for life i mean you you get this like business for life the mediterranean business you know these these kinds of books come out um but we can tell when they're garbage because they might disagree with some of these foundational truth but uh, you know sure. But then one of those examples that I love that, you know, I'm sure this isn't from you originally or something, but like the drunk guy looking for keys. <laughs> yeah. So this is just an example of how uh, research is messy. And we have this, um, you know, quantification bias. And this, uh, you know, so basically what we're trying to do in, in many areas of science and, uh, you know, from my area of social science is we're trying to observe things and we're trying to then either, you know, explain, describe or predict other types of phenomena based on what we observe. And, uh, you know, one way to think about this, though, is that we, you know, oftentimes will be uh, lured by looking at those things that we can measure and that we can measure easily. And one way to think about this is, you know, imagine some drunk guy. It's, uh, you know, the bar closes and He's out. Of course, it's a drunk guy. This is it only works with a guy because um, I, I, women are smarter than this. But there's some guy who's outside <laughs> and he's he's stumbling around and um, he's looking for his keys. Right. And where does he look for the keys? Well, more often than not, he's looking underneath the streetlight and he's looking underneath the streetlight, of course, because that's where he can see. And if you think of this metaphor for how we understand 
the social world, uh, we oftentimes will look for those things and measure those things and study those things that are easily quantifiable, that we can assess uh, with, you know, with relative ease. And that's problematic because, of course, the keys may be in the dark. They may be somewhere that are that we haven't figured out a way to measure yet, or is just so messy that um, that we just haven't figured it out. Uh, so that's that's tricky, right? Um, and that's that's one of the problems that we have in science is this uh, kind of bias towards those things that are easy to measure. Um, and, and there's not a not a uh, you know a clear way around that. But another problem that we do have in science, and I don't want to, you know, make people distrust science altogether at all, um, but because we'll come back to, you know, why science is great, but because it is the best method that we have thus far to, to understand things. But, um, you know, is this idea of the, the garden of forking paths, um, right. which is, I, I just love this metaphor. And so I believe this was a short story at some point that, um, but then a, a researcher named Andrew Gelman uh, uses this as another metaphor to describe how in science we oftentimes can make some rather false discoveries when we don't have a pre-specified plan of how we're going to uh, analyze our data and, uh, and, and our methodology for conducting our studies. Um, and instead, we kind of, you know, when we see a piece of data, we, we, we choose some sort of um, analysis and you know this idea of a garden of forking paths, right? You're walking through a garden, and there's all these different forks in the in your path. You can make all these little choices along the way, and this happens with researchers when they are looking at their data, um, when they're cleaning the data, because data are oftentimes messy. Uh, when they're make, doing their analysis and so forth, uh, and this can lead to uh, some um, you know erroneous types of conclusions. So. The the basic message that I'm trying to share here is that science is a great method, but it is rather messy. Right. And most people aren't familiar with this. Heck, I even see this out in the manufacturing world where people think of everything as a linear relationship. One plus mm. one equals two. But maybe the line of the data is on a curve. Ooh. Right. So, you know, um, a typical thing is you know, on a scale of one to five, how likely are you to buy, you know, green products or something? And so if you said, hey, this group of 40 people, um, everybody put a three. So how likely are they to buy a green product? Most people immediately go, oh, 50-50, you know, some, something around there, right? Mm. You know, one, they're not going to buy it. Five, they're definitely going to buy it. Three, you know, half of them will buy it, half of them won't or something. You know, mm -hmm. those those are the kind of responses. And and it's so deceptive because what if we find out that only people that make a five are the only ones that ever, you know, buy a green product, right? right? If you plotted that out, that would be, that means uh, somebody who writes a four is no more likelier to buy green products than a one. Mm -hmm. And and people make these kinds of mistakes because they don't understand how how that data maps out right so right. so it, okay so that's kind of a like over the world and we'll, we'll get into some misconceptions here in a minute but like how does io psych um first of all that io stands for industrial and organizational mm -hmm. psychology right how, how do they think about this stuff Right. So I guess just to provide a really high level overview, but industrial and organizational psychology is all about taking the research principles and the methods of psychology and applying them to the workplace. Um, this is a field that developed um, particularly around the early 1900s, um, you know, especially with uh, the advent of World War One and World War Two, when we are needing to try to uh, assess uh Tons of people going into the military. Um, I mean, these are the people who created the ASVAB, um, which is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, a test that um, people take if they enlist in the military. Uh, and over time, um, we have really, as a community, as a discipline, evolved to be the people who study things like um, hiring, things like performance appraisal, things like leadership, things like teamwork, um, and a whole host of other things related to human behavior at work. And, you know, this is a social science. Um, what we're trying to do, uh, you know, following the principles that 
um, you know, that all scientists follow is we're trying to use evidence and produce more evidence and find ways for the world at large to use evidence in a better way to influence how they actually manage their organizations. It's, it's a rather applied science, uh, meaning that what we do is we try to uh, discover things that are uh, fairly readily applicable to the real world. Um, you know, so there are different types of research, some research, you know, what we call more, you know, um, basic type research or theoretical type research um, involves, you know, in, you know, more experimentation types of research, trying to mm. figure out some fundamental things about, you know, uh, you know, this is this is how this is how the rats behave in a, in a certain way. Right. And then taking that all the way to the clinical trial, if you want to think about like pharmaceuticals. Um, so, you know, another way that we think about this is trying to trying to take like the the whole function and profession of HR, for example, and help it be more research informed. Um, also, uh, there is a, a large area of focus within industrial and organizational psychology on testing and measurement. We have some just amazing uh, quantitative people <laughs> in, in our field, uh, people who are doing all kinds of cool stuff in the world of statistics. And um, also as technology continues to evolve, um, you know, on the kind of the cutting edge of, of how we, how we use computing power, uh, in organizations, you know, things like, uh, artificial intelligence and machine, machine learning and all that kind of stuff <laughs> that, um, that, that is becoming more and more, um, prevalent out there. So, um, you know, we, we try to build upon all the knowledge that we've had over the past several decades and so forth, um, to, to make the world a better place through better organizations, um, you know, smarter organizations through science. So that, that's how we view this. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I'd be curious to know your perspective since you, um, you know, are coming at this from, uh, you know, the outside and, and learning about it, you know, kind of through me. Um, you know, what has been your perception? Well, you know, the IO psych, you know, I didn't even know because I'd read research, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially when... So a lot of my approach to this has been, okay, so I come through like, a you know, technology and manufacturing background and project management and, and a bunch of the teams type stuff from the military. And you're like, oh, I want to get better at, at stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you'd start reading all this research and then, you know, didn't know I was even reading IO psych stuff, right? Right. So like when we talk about leader member exchange, all that kind of stuff, you're like, oh, yeah, that's all out of what I do. Mm -hmm. Oh, do tell. And so it's been really <laughs> nice um, to get a really solid curated reading list and learning how to approach this body of knowledge as a practitioner that's been out in organizations. So, right. um, but like stuff like the power pose, you're like, I don't know, this sounds Ugh. pretty jank, right? Yeah. And, but then, you know, okay, well, let's go see where where else right so one mm -hmm. of the things that we want to talk about is single studies don't prove anything right yeah. Yeah. so like amy right that was the person's name mm -hmm. uh, you know she did this research or doctor what, what's her last name cuddy yeah dr cuddy over there at you know did that research great now now we don't go throw rocks at um her right you know we say okay this is really interesting how are we going to validate this, mm -hmm. right? And so generally, you know, she published her stuff uh, in a journal, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about journals and like the literature and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So, you know, going back to, we talked about how, you know, science is about this accumulating a body of knowledge about something. And where does that body of knowledge reside? Well, it, it resides in academic journals, by and large. And the, there are thousands upon thousands of these things um, across every single academic discipline. And uh, what, you know, what's important to um, understand is that there is a process through which you get something published. Um, you know, I didn't know this before I, you know, went into... Um, you start thinking about graduate school and all this kind of stuff. It just, I just was like, oh yeah, yeah. Professors kind of publish stuff once in a while, and um, it, it's much different from getting something published in your local newspaper or getting something published in a magazine. Um, what it involves is, you know, you come up with a study and you conduct the study and you write it up, um, and then you submit it to a journal. Um, upon submission, the 
uh, editor will assign that piece to one of his or her associate editors, usually, uh, who has some expertise maybe in that area or is kind of, you know, maybe over that large group or maybe just doesn't have, you know, in terms of balancing the workload for these associate editors. And then that person will, um, uh, you know, help to get peer review of that of that piece. Um, now, before that even happens, you know, sometimes if it's just really outside of the journal's realm or uh, is is not up to snuff in some way, the, the journal may desk reject it, which means they'll just very quickly say, nope, try somewhere nope, else. No, not for yeah, us. Exactly. Right. Um, but uh, then the, the whole process of what we call peer review starts. And this is where the uh, uh, piece gets then sent out to, um, you know, in my field, it's usually two or three um, reviewers, people who have published a decent amount, who have some knowledge about that area, and they will then read the, the article. And this is all blind. Uh, so right. I don't know, you know, so as the reviewer, I don't know who the person who wrote the study is, um, and they don't know who I am. And they, they will not. Ben know. wrote this, and I hate Ben, so I'm just going <laughs> to give him a right. bunch of yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, ethically, if you come across a piece where, for whatever reason, maybe it's a description of the date or whatever, you're where you are like, I think I know exactly who this is. Then I think it would behoove you as the reviewer to tell the editor, be like, Hey, I think I might know who this is, and they could maybe get a, a different reviewer. Um, but you read through it and you then um, provide your critique of it. Um, talk about you know what are some of the strengths and some of the ways in which uh, you know it, it might be useful, but also um, providing you know, the best reviews are ones that are constructive that say, hey, you know, here's ways in which the manuscript could be better and so forth. And, you know, based upon that, um, the editor will make a decision to either reject the piece outright um, or uh, to give the authors an opportunity to revise it and send it back called a revise and resubmit. Um, or, you know, they could provide some sort of, you know, conditional acceptance or outright acceptance right away, which is extremely rare. Um, you know, the best thing that you usually realistically can hope for if you are submitting a, an article to a journal is a revise and resubmit decision. Um, so, yeah, you, know. you mail it in, you know, it's going to happen. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how this works. And I've, I've been on both ends of this. So I'm on the editorial board of the journal of business and psychology. So I, um, do frequent reviews for them. And, um, and of course I submit my stuff and I deal with the reviews. And actually when you, when you make all the revisions and send them back to the journal, um, you know, best practice. And I mean, this is very widespread and, and every, if they don't do this, it's really annoying, but you know, as the authors, you should, um, you know, respond to every single one of the comments that the reviewers made and say, yeah, cause is, they spent the time. It's, yeah. it's annoying. You know, you're right. trying to publish your own stuff. Yeah. You got maybe course load or research stuff, oh, yeah. and then you're like, "Oh God, I got to go review like ten articles this month." Yeah, you know? no, and it can be um, it can be time consuming. So um, that's what peer review means, and it's me that again is a messy, imperfect process. But you know what I have, and, and it can be extremely frustrating as a researcher to go through that process of, "Oh gosh, like why are they quibbling with this little thing or whatever?" Or you know, um, but reluctantly, I think most researchers at least I'll speak for myself, admit that, you know what, that, that process actually make it better. It does. Yeah. It, you know, my, my paper's better now. Um, or, you know, that, yeah, that paper probably wasn't really good and they probably rejected it for a good reason. Um, yeah. So, so. like, that, so that, I get this all the time that these scientists are a secret, you know, Illuminati cabal with a, <laughs> you know, mode you know, you'll have some person, right? And they'll see a piece of research that's maybe been substantiated, you know, a hundred additional times. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking vaccines here or something like that. Yeah. And and some, some person will be like, no, 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 this is wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, actually, let me back up here. So I see this a lot. And we talk about this in the difficult conversation episodes is one of the conversation that's going on under the hood is identity. And I see this in Park City all the time because you got a lot of successful people out here and they'll say, well, why are you, I, why are you there? What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> 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 but they'll, they'll say, I have been a teacher for 20 years uh -huh. and I am a, you know, physicist and well, something isn't true because of who you are. It's true because the preponderance of evidence shows that it's true. 
Yeah. And so now, I mean, at least that person's like a physicist or something. Okay. You know, is probably not the biggest numbskull around. Right. Mm -hmm. But you'll find some, some guy in some, you know, company that's, well, I've got an MBA and this science is garbage. Well, just because I don't care where that MBA is, unless you can back that up or, you know, with, well, tell us about some of the ways you validated that assumption. Right. And and then generally they say, well, I know it's not true because these scientists are, you know, conniving together to push a certain result. And and we have had now let's let's be honest. Science has missed it before. Mm hmm. You know, one of the things they missed that was kind of big was that the Earth was the center of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, oh, well, it looks like the sun's kind of the center for at least our system, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they went around flat earthers. Sorry, guys, you missed it, right? <laughs> you know, that there have been times that people have missed it. But the thing is, is there seems to be an impugning of some motivated reasoning for, you know, they're trying to pick, uh, you know, trick the populace. Now, Ben, let's talk about, well, how, how is that so unbelievably unlikely that it's crazy? Well, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's unlikely because of the very nature of the peer review process, um, that where you have, you know, double blind review of studies, uh, and you know, it, now, now could it, could it be a, a situation where maybe, you know, there is some sort of, um, you know, a pharmaceutical company is paying some researcher a whole bunch of money to to investigate the efficacy of that that drug. Yeah, that, that could happen. Um, you know, I, I think that by and large, though, the way that most scientists are trained and the, the nature of the peer review process does tend to mitigate a lot of that. Um, and, uh, you know, mo- most, if not all journals of any rep, re, you know, reputable standing will, you know, require you to disclose any kind of financial um, you know, uh, support for your research and, and so forth um, to provide some, you know, evidence of uh, of that possible conflict of interest that might might arise. And and here's um, the thing: the single study doesn't prove it, right? right. It starts the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, and it, science it, is a self-correcting process, right? Mm-hmm. So they may think, "Oh, this looks super likely." Yeah. Okay, we did another test. Oh, looks even more likely. We did another test. Oh, getting certain. Another test. Ooh, we discovered something that just totally disregards those first three. Right. And and so, well, yeah, well, maybe we were wrong for seven years because it took us time to get to the other side, right? Yeah. yeah. But this is a group of subject matter experts doing their best to struggle with these ideas, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, it's just so frustrating to see some numbskull be like, well, I am an MBA and I... They provide no evidence. They cite nothing that was specifically wrong with this study. Like, I don't think their sample size was large enough or anyway, total pet peeve that I just run into all the time. Yeah. Now, there are some issues, you know, within the scientific community that that make publishing kind of a tricky thing. Um, well, there are a whole bunch of things, but one is that there is a fair amount of pressure to publish. Um, and so, you know, in order to get tenure at, uh, you know, the vast majority of, of, um, <laughs> universities, right. You need, like most people don't get denied tenure because they're, because of their teaching, right. Um, it's because of their research productivity and actually getting stuff published. Um, because that is your currency as, as a scientist, as a, as a researcher, if you're in the humanities, usually it's books, um, those types of things that, that shows that you have, um, you know, some gravitas and ability to produce new knowledge. And there's a lot of pressure to that. So that does create, you know, an incentive structure where, you know, have there been cases where people have falsified data? Oh yeah, there have been, um, there, there are humans too. And, you know, other types of issues um, in terms of how they've conducted the research. But going back to your point, this is why uh, replication is very important and that science is about the, you know, accumulating a preponderance of evidence for something. Um, There are also a number of journals out there, academic journals, or (laughs) I don't even want to call them academic journals, quasi pseudo-scientific journals. Pay to publish. I mean, you know, I'm thinking uh, that whole racket. Yeah, we call them predatory journals, right? And these are journals where it's like, 
I, and I get these emails all the time, like the, you know, the International Journal of blah, 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 where they're like, oh, submit your research. And, you know, we, we, bought, we have, uh, you know, if you pay us, you know, $1,200, it'll be in there. And it's like, no, like that's just garbage. And, um, you know, so there's, but, but then like, it's amazing because there, there is some self-organization and self-correcting types of mechanisms that have emerged to combat this. Um, so for example, some, uh, organizations have, uh, published lists of, you know, these are predatory journals that we have, we have noticed. And, and yeah, so don't, if so. you work for us, don't publish here. Right. Right. And there definitely is a hierarchy of these academic journals. Um, and, you know, so for example, in my field of business, um, and applied psychology and management and so forth, you know, one, uh, you know, I guess there are a number of different ways you can look at this, and none of them are perfect. Um, but actually, the Australian uh, Business Deans Council, so there's this group of um, deans of business schools in Australia that come together and produce this list of um, of journals. And it's actually fairly helpful. And, and in general, it, it seems to align with, you know, the better journals are the ones that they, you know, give an A rating to and the, the not the you know the ones yeah. that are nature a is a higher ranked journal than ranger rick right ranger <laughs> rick's not even a journal and and that's so another good thing to look at is impact factor right yeah. and this is how many times is a study um cited by other other right. journals right yeah yeah so this is a a journal level metric where you know it's like hey this journal has an impact factor of 2.2 or whatever um and what what that means in kind of very simplified terms is that um you know people are citing literature from that journal elsewhere um and so uh you know that's that provides some indication of the journal's quality um it, it's not perfect but it, it's it's one of those things right so all right then let's let's move to some um Man, I guess we kind of already hopped into some misconceptions. What are some oh, other? Good. And we're gonna put in the show notes a list. Um, we I got this from uh, Berkeley.edu. It's it's mm. actually for teachers of science to kids, but they have a pretty good list of misconceptions that people have about science. And, right. and the one of the first ones is science is a collection of facts. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's where it goes back to this idea that, um, you know, science is about collecting evidence that uh, a preponderance of evidence that can help us understand something. Um, and, you, you know, I think a number of these misconceptions have to do with, you know, that science doesn't involve creativity or that it's just kind of this linear process. Um, definitely not true. And, and and actually, your entire approach towards science can uh, depend um, in part upon some really deep questions that we, we don't have time necessarily to get into today. But um, these questions of ontology, so like what 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 is the nature of of reality, um, and and what is truth, and then what we call epistemology. How do we ascertain what truth is? Um, you know. It, is there anything as one truth or not? And then, and just your, those fundamental assumptions can really inform how you go about research. Um, you know, is there, can you, can you quantify everything or not? Um, right. or, the, uh, the observer effect, you know? Right. Like, um, yeah. And then also, you know, or, or is the world more interpretivist in nature? And we, we need to, uh, you know, use, um, do, can we understand more through maybe qualitative research? Uh, you know, do you, do you learn more about human behavior by giving people a, a survey and uh, quantifying their every movement and so forth? Or do you understand more about uh, human behavior by by watching them and analyzing their words and their uh, and maybe even images of them, all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, there's just a lot that goes into um, how we even think about science. So, uh, you know, one way to also think about this, which is somewhat related, is uh, this idea of inductive or deductive reasoning. Inductive uh, analysis uh, or inductive reasoning is about looking at a preponderance of evidence and then letting the data speak, so to speak, and having, you know, developing some initial theory based upon what you're seeing. Deductive reasoning is more about, hey, here's something we know about this area and let's test it. So um, just another. Yeah, we'll, we'll another have a list of these misconceptions and, and a deep dive there. Um, so, Ben, when science works, what kind of knowledge does it freaking give us, you know? Right. So at least from my perspective in a social science, uh, you know, looking at the world of work, 
um, I, you know, it, it does help us understand and explain and to some degree predict the world around us. Um, you know, very practically speaking, you know, within the world of industrial and organizational psychology, we, you know, for example, we have a good idea of what kinds of things work when we are trying to hire people versus things that don't work. You know, we, we know through a lot of research, for example, that handwriting analysis has uh, <laughs> very little, if any, correlation with someone's job performance. Right. Um, Thank you know, God. But, right. <laughs> but, but we do know that, you know, having uh, relevant uh, job um, work sample tests and having structured interviews and uh, intelligence, like these types of things actually do matter, right? Um, so it can help us to understand, explain, and predict the world around us. Right. So all, all these business books, you know, generally talk about, well, this is how it worked for me, or this is what I saw. You know, that that kind of stuff is anecdotal. You know, there's mm -hmm. so much stuff under the hood, and that's why it's important to actually bring, you know, the science of how organization works to bear. So Ben, you did a recent study on refugees. Let's kind of maybe walk through high level the process for, you know, why did you decide to study that and then kind of how you went down to actually publishing something? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep this at a high level um, and not bore our listeners. But, you know, the, what this, uh, the, this study was really, um, you know, the impetus for this study came from my own experiences working with uh, interpreters, linguists, who were working with me in Afghanistan. Um, many of them, by nature of their work on behalf of the U.S. government, were permitted to then apply for what's called the Special Immigrant Visa Program. And, uh, you know, if they're approved, then immigrate to the United States. And uh, a number of my people were uh, that I worked with in Afghanistan were trying to do that. A number of them were successful. And actually, several of them ended up moving to uh, my corner of Ohio. And uh, it was just fascinating to kind of get a, a glimpse in terms of their experience going through that and seeing what their life was like when they were trying to um, make it here in America. Uh, and so, you know, we I started the study where we are looking at this, uh, the process through which uh, refugees and, and recent immigrants uh, go about getting employment. Uh, because in the United States, the, you know, employment is uh, the cornerstone of resettlement. Uh, you, you've got to get a job. Um, you know, your, the, the benefits that you receive from the government, they run out fairly quickly uh, as a refugee, and you need to get a job. And so resettlement agencies help people do this. Uh, and so what we did is, you know, in terms of studying this is, first of all, like, you know, uh, this is a, a, a new area of research. And when you have a new area of research, you oftentimes don't have some substantial kind of master theories that you can go out and test and so forth. And so this lends itself very well to uh, more of an inductive approach first using, you know, more of a qualitative type of investigation first. And so we did a lot of interviews. We talked with many different recent refugees from various places to try to understand, you know, what were some of the big, big uh, themes that, you know, emerged from their, their uh, process of resettlement. And then, you know, this led us to some ideas around how the, that the kind of pathway that these people would take towards employment, as well as some insights about psychological resilience and so forth along the way. It's really quite fascinating. Um, and then we followed that up with a you know, a survey, and it was a relatively small survey, but we, we did a survey of some of these people to try to quantify some of these dynamics that we saw in those interviews. Um, so, you know, if anything, you know, we learned a, a few things. So first of all, we, we definitely gathered some evidence to re-substantiate this idea that in the United States, employment was is very central to these people's self-sufficiency. Um, refugees and immigrants definitely experience many different types of uh, adversity as they go through the job search process, and we documented what those were. Uh, some of that adversity really can stem from their unmet expectations um, and kind of what we call psychological contract violations. So like, this is what I thought the U.S. was like, but it, then I got here and no, it's not like this, right? So they, and, and what's kind of funny is that a lot of people who don't live in the United States and have never been here kind of form their perceptions about what it's like here based upon um, media. So, you know, if, if your only perception of the United States is what you gain by watching episodes of Friends, 
Like you're going to think that nobody has to work and you all get to just kind of hang out in this little coffee shop and do fun stuff all day long and that the streets are kind of paved with gold. Um, not true, right? Um, and so, you know, we also were able to quantify some some things around the ideas of underemployment and how this coincides with job sat- dissatisfaction and disillusionment with uh, with the whole process of resettlement. So uh, a very interesting study, but it was, it was definitely one of these ones that's messy. We had to, you know, kind of start with this qualitative approach and then move towards trying to quantify some of these dynamics. Um, So just as a small example, right? Right. And, and the important thing is this is one study, right? Um, This starts the conversation. Other people are going to have to come in and validate maybe some of the things that you learned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, it's a springboard for future conversation, like professional conversation, which happens in peer reviewed journals. Um, right. Um, and we'll put, if you're interested in that study, uh, on refugees, we'll put a link to that, um, in the show notes, but, but this, th- that's the whole thing. So now, let's talk about how we're going to use this stuff. Right. So mm-hmm. for, with an example of, let's say that your research was the only research on refugees ever, hmm. right? And because here's the thing is we have to make decisions in the now, right. right? Based on, okay, Ben, you're in charge of all refugees in the United States. Okay. Well, you're going to have to make some decisions that just riffs on it a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Um, however... You would be crazy not to have the research that exists inform your approach, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least read the daggone thing, right? Sure, sure. Right. So, I mean, I think the um, some takeaways here and how you can use research to, to do your work better in organizations and in, sci- in society and um, to some degree informing public policy, right, um, is by consulting the research that's out there and trying to understand um, what do we know about this and what are some of the, some of the things that we should be aware of. And, you know, in the case of something where there, maybe there's only a couple studies on it, then it's like, okay, well, here's some things that we, we seem to, that seem to be the case. Um, Let's, you know, maybe take these types of ideas and see how they play out in our environment. Um, Taking them with a little bit of a grain of salt, because this is not a, uh, you know, a research area that's been around for, you know, 40 years, uh, and then use that to, to, to guide our approach. Um, again, you know, there, there is no silver bullet um, in, the, in the world of leadership, in the world of management, in the world of uh, organizations, at least not that I've found. And I, I think there's, there's fairly limited probability that, that we'll find one. Um, but I can empathize with real managers because I, you know, I, I actually manage people too in part of my life. Right. So, you know, you have to make use of what you have out there. Right. Right. So there's, there's all these business books out there. Right. Mm. And most of them are unhelpful for really improving things. Mm. Um, there's a difference between, uh, who moved my cheese and the surprising science of meetings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> there is and you know who, who moved my cheese is an entertaining read that that you can get through in about 30 or 40 minutes uh and maybe you know it, and if you maybe it starts a conversation about how you always need to you know be on the lookout for change and be ready for change and stuff like that but um it's not based upon any kind of research or evidence um and contrasting that with a book like the Surprising Science of Meetings by Stephen Rogelberg, who whom we will have on this podcast uh, in the in the future, um, where he bases you know a, a lot of conclusions about uh, how we run meetings in the workplace based upon research on it, um, and you know using that as a springboard for some implications that we can use. Uh, so you know there definitely is a difference. I think recognizing that difference and that that difference exists is something that all of our listeners can take away from this. You know, be it when you're reading a self-help book, be it when you're reading some sort of business book, um, in all of these areas of nonfiction, I think that you can, um, you know, make some sort of determination. Is this just a a good story? Is this uh, one person's experience? Or is this something that perhaps has been validated over and over and over again? 
Um, and, and that can help to in, inform your approach. Now, there are some amazing people who write, you know, this is my memoir on my life of leadership. And there might be some amazing things that you can learn from that. I'm not, not discounting that at all. You just need to be aware of the difference in terms of, you know, what what types of evidence are out there. Yeah, but I, I just want to be a little bit annoying and interject on this. Be right? annoying. But yeah, so we go into this, uh, you know, we'll go into these executives' office and I, you know, I, I, as somebody who loves to read, will see a big bookshelf over there. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, wow, I haven't read this one. Uh, was it good? Actually, I, I haven't read any of those books. I just bought them, right? Yeah. So they, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to buy these bad business books and put them on there. But that being said, there's only so much time in your life. And I, mm. I just don't understand why somebody would be read because you only have so much time. Why would you read a fad book or a non-evidence-based book versus right. a book that could actually help you improve stuff? Now, I know, you know, because it's emotional when you're a manager and you're going, and you're like, oh, no, the, the VP just changed. Now I have to go realign myself and show them I'm not an idiot, you know, and you know, you have these stresses or, you know, there's a reorg and you get booted and you'd just gotten your first executive role. So now you got to go validate that. I mean, right. We have all these emotional gauntlets that we've got to run, but you know, and that's kind of what I see a lot of these books going and somebody reads, mm. it's like, Oh, if I do these magic things, I'll be the successful manager. You know, my spouse will think I'm wonderful. The kids will do well in school. You're, you're just going for snake oil, right? Mm -hmm. um, that being said, the disappointing, crushing, brutal truth is, like we said, there's no silver bullet here. But at least you can start your journey at where the conversation is now, rather mm -hmm. than trying to invent the wheel on your own every day in your working life, right? Right, right. Uh, you know, one way that I like to think about um, much of what we know in, for example, industrial and organizational psychology is that, you know, we know a lot about what works and we know a lot about what definitely doesn't work <laughs> in organizations. And we can help guide uh, organizations in the right direction um, and try to find out, you know, how we can do things better in, in a much, much more informed approach um, versus some sort of anecdotal uh, you know, oh, this worked in you know this company. Let's let's try it here. You know, that type of approach. Right. When I when I work with teams of engineers, you know, um, trying to get them to conceptualize um, like some project management methodology, and also just remember the passion of why they even became an engineer. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I said, guys, if I put a gun to your head, right, and said you got to build me a submarine. You know, if I didn't put the gun, you'd be like, oh, we can't do that. That's really not going to work. But like if you really had, you know, some threat of life on it, you guys would say, OK, well, I guess we got to, you know, maybe get a tank of water or something to run tests on. You would start that process. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's if you were in isolation. But if I said you have to do this, you'd say, great. You'd immediately go to some submarine design guidelines and stuff. You, you'd research the professional literature. But when people are building the ship of their life, I'm just scandalized by how little they go to the best places for knowledge, right? Like if I've got cancer, I'm not going to the, you know, the hemp doctor down the road. I, I'm going to go <laughs> see a professional. Um, and we can do this. And this is what's so exciting. And a lot of people don't know that industrial and organizational psychology even exists, but mm -hmm. You can go and find out this stuff. And people like Rogelberg are publishing <laughs> books that are accessible to the masses that are based on research and, and validated findings. Right. No, that's that's well said. And uh, you know, I think this can also help managers to um, you know avoid some of the fads that are out there in management and leadership. There's a lot of kind of faddish things that come and go. Uh, you know, one that's uh, been on my mind because there's been some popular press about how this is a fad is, you know, the, the benefits of the open office where you, <laughs> you know, everyone just kind of has, uh, you know, open, maybe, you know, kind of taking down the walls on your cubicles, moving people outside of their offices. So everybody's kind of in the same, um, area. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, these are big organizations yeah. facing I, massive I, amounts of money and strategy right. around baloney. 
Yeah. Right. And, and you know, like yeah. Dell, when I was at Dell computers, they did who moved my cheese, which isn't the most horrible thing in the world. But like, you know, people said, okay, open workplace is great or remote work. That's another mm-hmm. one. You know, okay. We send all of our workers back to their houses. Oh, the productivity has gone to heck, you know? Okay. Right. Bring them all back in. Oh, and then, and then you'll see, it's so funny, you know, HBR, somebody will publish, oh, doing this is the best thing you could ever do. And then somebody will publish, actually, no, it's not. Look at all this data. And then somebody will say, well, maybe it's not all or nothing. We can have a blended approach. Mm-hmm. I, the science isn't actually there. And so maybe that doesn't mean you can't, just because the science isn't there doesn't mean you can't start making decisions now. But maybe you take an iterative run your own experiments approach, right? right? I mean, that's a, that's another approach towards this idea of evidence-based management. Where does that evidence come from? Well, it can come and it should come, I think, uh, to the extent possible from the scientific literature on on whatever you're you're trying to look at. Uh, but it also can come from experiments in your own data that you collect in your organization, provided that you are following some, uh, you know, to the extent possible, some elements of the scientific method to try to figure out what does work in your organization. Uh, so you could test some of these things. Um, you know, and, and the big idea here, I think, is that just because something works in one organization or for one leader um, doesn't mean it will necessarily work, you know, in your organization or uh, or for you, you know. And, you know, it is enticing and it can't be interesting to read the, the biography or the memoir of, um, you know, Jack Welch or whatever. I'm looking over at my bookshelf and, it, you know, the title of it was Winning. And, um, you know, it's, <laughs> so it's much in, winning, <laughs> so, so much winning, hashtag winning. Um, and yet we've thrown out some key elements of Jack Welch's stuff. Like, you right. know, if you're, if you're in the bottom the percentage, you're fired. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the whole force distribution of performance appraisals that, that he advocated. So, um, you know, I, I think just be cautious about these types of things. And it doesn't mean, you know, I, I grew up reading biographies about amazing people, and I think there's a lot that we can learn. But you have to um, understand that every one every one of these types of um, anecdotal pieces, they're all situated in a particular place and time. Um, you know, so you can use the scientific method to better understand your world and what's going on in your organization. And one whole idea that has emerged over the past number of years is this idea of evidence-based management, evidence-based leadership. And I think this is a very helpful thing. And there's a number of of cool organizations out there that are, um, you know, academic organizations that are trying to help people do this better. Um, And we're going to post a link to a a cool um, article that I think is super helpful um, from a, a researcher named Rob Briner. Uh, so good. Yeah, it's a very, it's really good. It's called the basics of evidence-based practice. Um, and talking about, you know, what does it mean to use evidence uh, with regard to HR practices, with regard to management and leadership overall, and what some of those sources of data might be and how you can use them to increase your probability of success. You know, because I, I think it's also just important to, to remember when we are dealing with humans and human organizing, the best that we can hope for is to increase our probability of success. We, it, this is a game of probabilities. Um, there is very little uh, complete certainty that we can, and, and you know, this is again trying to puncture that <laughs> that idea of um, you know that we can we we can predict everything perfectly because we can't. But we can increase the probability of success. We can decrease the probability of failure um, by fo- by by standing on the shoulders of giants who have researched these things and have learned a lot about how the world works with regard to human interaction in the workplace. So when we come into an organization, for example, we have a really good understanding of where where evidence is at a base point. But then when it's something that we need to address that the mm-hmm. you know body of knowledge doesn't speak to really well, we talk about you know what kind of experiments and why we might think, right? We have an informed way forward. So we're very specific on, hey, hey, this is just best practice at this point, right? And this is the area of emergent Mm -hmm. practice. And this is, there's actually best practice for how to play in those emergent fields. And so that's the kind of stuff that we bring. So if you are bringing consultants into your organization, one, you know, make sure that they have an understanding of the underlying information. So you'll be surprised at how many people say, oh, well, I base this off this one pop business book. 
or I, and they build whole, I mean, they look good in a suit. They got mm-hmm. a good social media game. You know, they can sell a, a bag of baloney to your organization. Um, read the Briner article that we're going to post up there. You know, you can use these to validate the mm-hmm. people that you're going to bring into your organization and make sure that they're heading in a way that's that's evidence-based. Right. And, you know, another thing that we we do when we go into organizations that is, um, you know, on this idea of evidence-based management is, you know, we oftentimes, um, if not always, will do some data collection. We will, uh, you know, do a bunch of interviews and maybe a survey and, and try to really gain a multifaceted perspective about what's really going on. And then comparing that with what we know from the scientific literature about how people work in organizations and what tends to work and not work uh, in this given situation so that we can have an informed approach forward versus, um, you know, right. this is what you must but, do. You know, Goodbye. it right. can feel, you know, <laughs> you're in an organization, things are falling apart. You call an expert, they give you this narrative of catharsis. And I mean, our brains are designed to be hijacked by that kind of thinking. Um, But we can actually take some discipline to our thought process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like this episode, it it may not just make you want to charge up the hill with, you know, emotional fever, um, but it will help you get to a better place in the end. So, Ben, um, let's let's wrap up. What did we talk about today? Yes. So today we talked about science and we talked about what it is, uh, what it, you know, how it works to some degree. Uh, we also talked about, you know, when it works, what kinds of knowledge science can provide to us. And then we tried to provide some practical advice and some ideas around how uh, people can use the information that we provided today in a way to better inform their approaches towards work and life. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.